Welcome to the Men Are The Prize podcast. This is a safe space for men just like you to be open, vulnerable, and emotional. Every week, a new case study steps out of his comfort zone to discuss masculinity. Using the prize mantra, we discuss important aspects of being a man. This is the who, what, where, when, and how of manhood. Men are the prize podcast. It's Harvey, your host. How you been, men? How y'all doing? I feel like it's been a while since I talked to you. I hope you're doing well. I hope your soul is being enriched. I hope you're doing all the things you want to. I hope you are focused on your dreams, your accomplishments, and I hope you're not letting those occasional bad things that happen tear you down. Life isn't easy, but when you get to that goal, when you achieve what you want, you appreciate the time it took to get there. So always remember, we're just on this journey. There's going to be a pitfall, a right turn, a left turn. You know, we're always bobbing and weaving. Life is like boxing. We're just trying to not get hit or just deal with a good shot. But I know you men can handle it. Another week, another guest, another good guest, another black man to get up on here. We're talking. I bring to you. I'm a, this is the only time I'm going to say his full name because we're going to go with, the, go with the regular after this. I introduce you, Dr. Travis. Hood Scholar Harris, how you doing today, sir? Bro, what's up, bro? What's up? I'm just glad I'm finally on, man. It's been a long time coming. I'm glad I'm on, bro. That's what's up. I'm glad that you're on here. You listen. If you watch me, you know what I enjoy most besides a good conversation is a good bio. I like uh-huh. to read up on these, man. Let's uh-huh. get to this. So allow me to take a breath. Dr. Travis Hood Scholar Harris is the director of Black Revolutionary Education for the International Black Freedom Alliance and the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Hip Hop Studies. He's actively involved in the Black liberation movement and does not separate his freedom work from his academic work. His primary goal is for all Black people to get free. He has a plethora of experience in the freedom struggle from getting Black people out of jail to protesting on the front lines to writing policy in order to make systemic change. His research um, examines the multiple dimensions of African diasporas with a specific focus on race, religion, and hip hop. As an interdisciplinary freedom fighting scholar, he analyzes the complexities of Black life. That's a lot in that. That's that's a lot you've done. <laughs> Brother, if nothing else, damn, excuse me. Can I just, wow. Are you good, bro? I feel like Mr. Brown right now, like, who? I know, I know. And with that, here's my first question. Yeah. We men, we black men in particular, don't always get our flowers. Right, we aren't right. always applauded or praised for what we do. So my first question is, what is it like hearing your accolades read back to you? Yo, I ain't gonna hold you, bro. That joint is dope. And let me tell you why. I go through so much shit, bro. Like, like you said, this is a grown conversation. I go through so much stuff. And I'm constantly beat down, right? Because this is what we deal with as black men. It's a, a the, it's the, like this one scholar says, there is slavery, there was the terror of the mundane, right? As in every time we think about slavery, we always think about the brutality, the whoops, the shooting, the rape, etc. But this one scholar said that just the daily life 
of being an enslaved African was terrorizing. And I liken that to, that's how it is for Black men in this world, in this country right now. Just the daily life of being a Black man is dealing with some form of terror. So when I hear that stuff, I'm like, yo, I'm going to be happy. That's what's up. For That's any, li any little good thing that I can celebrate, shoot. I appreciate that. That's good. And you should be proud. And there's nothing wrong because you put time and yeah, effort put in into that this. These aren't just some fake words. These are accomplishments. And yeah. you should be proud of it. And brother, I'm proud of you. And I love, seeing, I love seeing a Black man succeed. Yeah, I love man. seeing a Black male educator. These yeah. are very few things that make me... I am, I'm a stay-at-home father of four. I have three daughters oh, and oh, a yeah. son. And you yeah. know how long it took me to find a Black teacher, a Black male teacher? When I finally saw that brother, I was so happy, man. It just, I'm like, there you go. Right. There you right. go. There we go. Because we're, we're so necessary and we're just not there. We're so rare. So to see yeah. a brother in there, I'm like... My kids are in good shape, in good space. Yeah. Now, the reason that I wanted to talk to you, we had gotten in contact a few months ago. I'm on TikTok and I'm only on TikTok because one of my kids is on TikTok. She loves it. Oh, She's yeah. on it. It's yeah. crazy. And slowly yeah. but surely, I kind of fell in. TikTok just sucks you in and you're just on there. But there was this one therapist and her name was Shabri Rawls. And she kind of got infamous because she posted some video about how black men need to go get therapy. And yeah. to a degree, what she was saying is true. How she said it was to me and to a lot of the men real ridiculous. Yeah. So just so that people get an idea of how I even found you, would you you mind giving me your ideas, thoughts on that video? And then we'll get to bigger things. Yeah. So the only I'm I'm trying to figure out what she said was true now because at the time, right, we I think we I think it's clear that black men need heal, right? That that's indisputable. Ever since then, before that, ever since then, there has been a slew of black therapists, not just regular therapists, black therapists online who have said some messed up things about black men. And for me, what this did was confirm what I have had so many black men say to me. Actually, matter of fact, I had this very conversation with my dad. I was like, dad. Yeah, maybe you should consider go get therapy. Maybe you should go get therapy. Talk about it. This can help you heal. He said, son, listen, this, I'm never going to forget what he said. He said, son, every time I leave therapy, I end up feeling worse. So on one hand, yes, black men need healing. There are things that we, issues that we need to work through. But the problem is the mechanisms that are currently in place that when we finally go and get therapy, we run into therapists like Sabri Ross. And then there's another one who recently said, you know what? I don't, I had some men who were trying to make me um, prove myself. So I'm no longer going to see men, any, any more male clients. Right? And then there's another therapist who said that she called black men nig cells. Right? So it's like, on one hand, yeah, we need healing. But do we want that type of healing? So yeah, we first connected because I, I kind of went many viral on Twitter saying that black men don't have a problem expressing ourselves, right? Because what she her her whole argument was contingent around that black men have a problem expressing themselves. And what I was explaining is that is I have a pretty long thread, but the quick synopsis of it is that black men open up, right? 
We open up when we say, when we feel safe to open up because yeah. there's been a pattern of whenever we open up, we get judged, we get discredited, we get invalidated, we get um, people don't listen to us, people don't pay attention. So it's like, why would we continue the same pattern of opening up, opening up, opening up? If when we do it, this is going to be the result, right? So black men have figured out that there are only particular people that we are safe enough, that we feel safe enough opening up to. So then that's when we open up. So then this raises the question, maybe it's not so much that black men have a problem communicating or that black men have a problem expressing themselves. Maybe people just aren't listening. That's what it is. That's what it is. So so that that's how we first connected because I laid this out in detail in the thread, just talking about just because at the time, because I'm going through some stuff personally, I was doing research, you know, I'm a scholar, so I'm doing research on abuse. And what I was noticing this ongoing pattern where the abuser became synonymous with men and the victim became synonymous with women. Let this sink in. If you are going to, if you are in undergraduate, if you're going through grad school and you want to be a counselor and all the studies you read, all your work is about the abusers being men and the victims being women, what type of program do you think this is going to do to your mind? So because of this, right, it's very, it's very, I've noticed that it's very difficult for therapists, for clinicians to see men as victims. And as a result of that, and all this, I have all the um, studies and I can provide it if people are interested in it. But as a result of that, black men are continually misdiagnosed, right? There actually is one study I found that what happens is because people have this, this caricature or this stereotypical perspective of black men, that's what they uh, that's what they attempt to treat during the clinical during the ther therapeutic session, right? So because of that, what the study found out is a lot of times they would say, okay, instead of getting to the deep rooted issues that we're dealing with, they say, oh, you know what it is, black men, y'all have problems drinking, or y'all have problems doing drugs. So then the treatment is about dealing with the symptoms. Okay, now black men, you need to stop. You need to stop drinking. You need to stop smoking. Where you need to stop doing these other behaviors, right? Which we know, really, these are coping mechanisms to deal with much deeper problems, right? So, so look, let's look what's happened. Let me, let me, let me make this game very clear. So, if a black man has a deeper problem, he starts drinking to deal with his problem. He goes to therapy. The therapist says. Your problem is drinking. So then the therapist tries to go through, oh, you know what? Okay, maybe you need to go through trip, um, Alcoholic Anonymous, Anonymous, right? And then they go to Alcoholic, uh, Alcoholic Anonymous. And because the issue isn't drinking, but the deep-rooted issue, they don't stop drinking. So then this is what happens, though. And this is the important part. When they go back to therapy, their therapist is saying, you're not doing your job right. You need to do this right. You need, and then they're pretty much victim blaming because they haven't, according to the therapist, they haven't dealt with the issue of stop drinking. This is how therapists like Sabri Ross can get online and say, y'all have a problem communicating. No, maybe the issue could be is you don't understand the deep rooted issues that black men are dealing with. 
you're telling black men to do these things and make these changes, but your recommendations aren't effective and beneficial because you've misdiagnosed them. And so, and we never get to the deep-rooted issues, how do we expect black men to act differently? Right? How do you expect a black man who's struggling with something, who's drinking as a coping me mechanism, to stop drinking if the, the root issues aren't being dealt with? And that, that right there, therein right there, lies the issue. And that's what we, we ultimately need to get to a point of dealing with, but that's also how we initially connected on Twitter. It brought about a lot of talk. I think Black men were like, why are you talking to us like this? What's this? Because, I mean, Black women are, are supposed to be our support. There's a backbone, the family, everything, take care of us. And then you... So you're saying something that sounds like it's supposed to be for us, but it's wrapped up in such negativity that I can't can't take it as a positive thing when you attacking me. And it's like, I remember I saw it. I'm like, who are you talking to? Like, I understand my mental health is important. I recognize I need help, but not from you and not from anybody who thinks like you. That's not the way that that's not it. I need to feel comfortable. I don't feel safe in a room with you at all. Why would I want to tell you anything? I wouldn't trust you to get to the root. And you're right. A lot. We got a lot of therapists who had just had this issue with black men. Black men are this. Black men are that. And it's just like, it just made it really hard to even trust, you know, psychotherapy or therapists. I don't feel like they're going to look at me as a regular person who has issues. They're going to look at me right. as a black man who's already got these problems and I'm going to see what I can do. Mm. So I remember, so I remember reading your, that that thread was Great. incredible because I'm like, facts, facts, point. Like you were hitting it. Like I was like, I'm typing it myself, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't even look this good if I said it. Like you was bad. But I was like, I respected that. That's why I wanted to talk to you. So I wanted to get that out there. But then yeah. from, from that, and I reached out to you and then you explained something that happened to you in your life. So I want you to get into that. Yeah. So tell yeah. me about what you dealt with in your industry as being, you know, a scholar. Talk to us. Yeah, so let, let's start off with the mountaintop, right? Let's start off the mountaintop. So, Hood Scholar. I came up with this name, actually, my last year of grad school because I'm from the hood, right? I'm a hood dude, and a lot of people from, from the hood or, or where I'm from, they heard this thing that black men from the hood end up in two places, the grave or in prison, right? So the fact that I'm not in the grave or prison it's huge in and of itself, right? So that's the one thing. But not only that, I get a PhD from the College of Women and Mary. And not only that, I get a PhD from, and this is in the American Studies program. There are literally only like eight American Studies programs in the country. So I'm in one of the top programs in the country and one of the, at the second oldest university in the country. But this is the thing. I did it in five years. The average PhD the average time for a humanities PhD is seven years. So I literally, I was the fastest to go through the program in, in my history. I mean, the fact in the history of this program, I was the fastest one to go through, right? So I, I'm I'm helping up to say, look, this, this is May 2019. I'm hyped. I get this job at VCU. And it's like, yo, like, this is huge because now, guess where I'm from? Richmond, Virginia. So not only am I a hood dude who got a PhD, but now I can literally go back to my hood because the position, get this, was a community engagement position. 
in the Department of African American Studies. This is at, at that time period, this seemed like a dream come true. Because now I'm about to be an assistant professor in a community engagement position at VCU where my job in my mind was going to be to go back to my hood that I came from. But this time as a PhD, right? Like just think about the magnitude for the, especially the kids there, right? Because I, I can tell them, I was thinking, I was just like you. I played in the same playground. I'm ran from those dogs over there. I know, I know the dope boys is over there. I know how it is when you turn on the light and all the roaches come on. I lived that life. And now I'm a professor at VCU. So yo, when it, when this first happened, this was huge, right? So I came in, I'm turned up doing orientation. One of the things I say, and this is gonna be important later on, I said, hey. I'm from the hood down there, right? Because I'm excited because I'm doing this community engagement position, but now I'm a PhD from a prestigious university, all right? So bam, so now we start we start VCU. I'm all excited and like I get my classes, I'm teaching um, Africana social, um, what is it, social and political thought. I'm teaching intro to African-American studies. Um, things are going good. One of my classes, because remember, I'm the community engagement person, is actually off campus. So the intro to African-American studies class is actually in, um, it was on a building in Broad Street, right? So if you don't know Richmond, Virginia, Broad Street is like the main street that cuts through the city, right? So one of my classes was off campus. Again, this is going to be important in the future. So classes are going. And, and one thing, another thing about VCU is VCU population-wise is black, right? There are a lot of black students, a lot of black professors, um, black people not just in janitorial positions, right? Because you know that's usually how it is right. yeah. in most PWIs, right? So it's black, right? But then this is when I start to notice something. After those first couple of weeks, although it's black, I realized that it was still a white institution. So now we literally have a lot of black people, even though it's a black department, but it's still a white space. Right? So um, that was one of the early signs that things weren't as, 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 as good as I was so excited about, right? So that happens. And then the, the first thing that really told me this wasn't right was our first faculty meeting. So we had our first, this was the first faculty meeting in person. Now, to, to, um, we, after I got hired, I actually attended one of the faculty meetings um, over Zoom. But that, so, so and, and once one of the, um, was it on Zoom? Or did, I can't remember. This was the first, let me say it this way. This was the first faculty meeting um, during the semester. There we go. So the first faculty meeting, because the other one was during the summer. So first faculty meeting during the semester. And um, at this meeting, something peculiar happened. There was, the door was open to the meeting and there was a lot of commotion outside, right? And it was hard for me to focus. You know, I'm a new faculty member. I'm fresh out of grad school. I'm excited, but I'm also trying to learn the culture. I'm like, so like, hey, y'all, can we like do something about all this outside noise? Cause it's hard for me to focus on the faculty meeting. 
And the chair was like, um, actually, like, don't worry about it. Just focus. You'll be okay. I'm like, all right. Well, that's yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the next day, it was either either like it was either, I can't remember. It's very close. It was either that same day or the next day or two days later. Um, again, I'm a, I'm a new Fiken member. I'm all as y'all can see. I got a lot of energy, right? So I'm all excited. I'm talking to a, a student um downstairs, and guess what happens? The chair comes outside and says, "Um, excuse me, Dr. Harris, but you are being too loud. I need you to quiet down." I'm like, hold, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. So when we was just in a faculty meeting, I was told that, you know, just deal with the noise outside. Like, it's not that big of a deal. But now, was pretty much the same exact situation. I'm like a, like a little child, like being reprimanded, like basically you being too loud, quiet down. I was like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. So these are the little signs I'm seeing earlier, like, okay. All right, so I'm, I'm still hyped, though, because it's still the beginning of the semester. So I started teaching my classes, right? Um, and in this class, right, in the, the Africana social political thought, I got to deal with gender, right? So the first, the, this week, I'm teaching Black, um, black masculinity, and then next week, I was going to teach Black feminism, right? Because as a professor, it's, it's about you can teach what you're interested in, but also in these like 100, 200 level classes, you just present the information, right. right? So it's not like I'm I'm being a proponent of either of them, or like like I'm pushing. It just that's just this is just my job as a um faculty member, right? Right. So. This class, this particular class, this week I'm teaching Black masculinity. Guess who I invite as a guest speaker? Tommy Curry. Oh, do you know who Tommy Curry is? The name sounds familiar, but no. But please tell me. Oh, okay. So Tommy Curry is like the founder of Black Male Studies. Okay. So he wrote this book in 2017 called The Man Not. And basically he argues how, how escapable manhood has been and continues to be to black men, right? And one of the key things he lays out in that book and he talked about in that class is black male vulnerability. As in there's this vulnerability that we deal with just as being black men, right? So in the class, um, it just so happened, it's crazy how this always happens while I'm teaching. I was in a conversation on Twitter and in his book, actually, because that's what, that this is how this is how it happened. In his book, I was reading to prepare for the class, and in his book, he he shared some data. This data is about to blow your mind. The data shows that in higher education, there are literally twenty two thousand more black women professors than there are black men professors. There's also at the same time, there's this ideal. Coming from higher education, there's this notion of black male privilege. So I asked this question on Twitter. How can we have, on one hand, 22,000 more black women professors 
And on the ha- on on the other hand, the same exact location, the same exact place, black men have privilege. The math literally ain't math, right? So, some people start going back and forth with me, and like I I tend not to get into these Twitter debates. But the first one I was I was talking to was somebody I knew offline, right? It just so happened that she went to Georgetown for undergrad. So because of that, a current at that time period Georgetown um student jumped in the conversation, and she was like, "Yeah, y'all still got privilege." I'm like, "But how though? Like, how are you addressing the twenty two thousand? She never really did, but you know what she said." I'm like, look, you don't know me, but I have a whole PhD and I studied this stuff. I'm not just making this up. She said, yeah, we all know some dumbass PhDs. I'm like, that's crazy. So I did all this work. I went through all this stuff in grad school. You know how it is as a black man making it through higher education. I finally get there for you to call me a dumbass. And so I used that as an example, as an opening example in that in class that day. And I'm like, so, so we're going to bring in Dr. Tommy Carey. And he's a world, he actually, he made four professors in seven years. Now he's at Uni- University of Edinburgh in, in Scotland. He has the, um, uh, he, he's the, the department, he has an endowed chair position over top of the whole entire department, right? So having him speak is huge. That's also my home. Tommy, if you watch this, Shout out, shout out to you, homie. So uh, Tommy speaks, he kills it. This actually ended up being one of the best classes of the semester. A couple of, let me give you some of the key points, and because I, I don't want to spend too much time on this one section. But one thing he said that stood out to everybody in the class was the fact that a lot of people don't think about this, but black men can actually be victims of sexual assault. It was so mind-changing and, and world-changing that I literally had students coming up to me after class basically saying that I was sexually assaulted and I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how literally students stayed back for like 10, 15, 20 minutes after class, still talking to Dr. Kerry, still talking about what we talked about in the class, right? So we have that class. Two things happened to that. As you see, I'm going by hood scholar. I, I zoomed them into the class, right? So I changed on Zoom, I changed my name just like this to hood scholar on Zoom. I did, that's one thing. The other thing that happens is I had this black woman feminist student to email my chair complaining about the class. And she said, listen to what she said. She said, I started off the class joking about a, a black woman's um, undergraduate student, right? You notice how she didn't say anything. She didn't, she kind of left out the fact that he called me a, she called me a dumbass. That wasn't a problem. Her problem was that I joked about it. I didn't, but that's the first complaint she said. Then she said that the overall tenor of the class was oppressive to me because the class was anti-black woman, anti-black gay, and anti-black feminist. How in the world is saying that black men can be victims, right? And he did critique some level of black feminism because he critiqued Bell Hooks. Do you know what Bell Hooks said about the Central Park Five? 
No, but I, I'm scared. I don't think I want to hear it. But go ahead. What she say? She said that black these black men participated in a suicidal ritual. Well, basically, they were letting out their beastly um urges and hurting the woman in the and raping the woman in the park. And as we all know, they were innocent. Right. Right. And 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 she also made statements like basically depicting us as beasts, right? So he pushed back as a scholar against these caricatures that one black feminist bell hooks had about black men, right? So she literally used this to say that I had an anti-black feminist class. Hey, what did I tell you I was teaching the next week? Black like women. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is, I because the other thing is I didn't know who the student was. Like it's like I don't know who you are. Unbeknownst to me, the um when when I so I go and talk to the department about chair. This is another important part. When I talk to the department chair about that, he says. Oh, this just sounds more like an intellectual disagreement. You didn't cuss at her. You didn't put her down. This, this is not even a big issue. Let's keep on. No problem. Right? What I didn't know was that he moved her out of the class. This is interesting, though, right? Because as she would have stayed the next week, she would have heard me actually lecture about bell hooks and black feminists. That's neither here nor there. So that's the first thing that happens, right? That, that officially happens. Next, I get an email from him, from the chair saying, hey, look, um, I, I, I noticed you changed your email to Hood Scholar. Do not conduct any professional or African-American business with this email. When I first get the email, I'm like, huh, what are you talking about? I don't know what are you talking about. And then I realized, oh, when I changed my Zoom name, it changed my email name. Have you ever seen that happen? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that. No. Yeah, it's super. I think because I use VCU's Zoom, that's why it changed the name. Okay. okay. But I'm like, so I didn't even know I did it, but this is my this is my issue with that, right? He never said, Hey, um, Travis, why did you change your name? Or hey, Travis, what's going on? He went straight to don't conduct any professional business with this email. Which later on led me to think, if I did do it, what was actually the problem? Why is the name Hoodscholar unprofessional? Right? So let's let that linger. A couple of weeks later, and so to be clear, there was three complaints. They the, let me well, let me jump to the end. What ends up happening is I get my I get my um they pull me out of the classroom and terminate my contract and say I'm no longer gonna be teaching there because of three complaints. Okay. So the first complaint was when the student, and let's be clear with the complaints first. The first complaint was a student email in the chair, right? The next thing that happens is, and this is important for the first complaint, they said that um, I was wrong. Listen to this part because I was live streaming my classes. Whenever I applied for the position, this is a community engagement position that was going to embrace and use technology. One of the classes is literally off campus. 
I said, so they said the problem with me live streaming, listen to this, was because I was making the content available to people who weren't in the class. Oh, community. Like, that's like in the title. What, what were they? And the other thing, listen to this. If I knew that live streaming was wrong, what, why would I sneak and try to live stream? I'm literally broadcasting to the whole entire world. Right. Clearly, I'm not intentionally trying to break the rules. Right? Clearly. The only reason why that, that is important because if you listen to the, the claims that the muted, that the student made in the first email, I did this where I recorded the lecture. And the stuff that she said in the email, I did not actually say. So this isn't a he say, she say, I remember, I'm trying to remember. No, I, you can literally watch the video and put it right up against what she typed out in the email. And they do not match up. Right? right. So then the third quote-unquote complaint this one's going to blow your mind. You're not going to believe the third one. A midterm participation grade. This student complained about her midterm participation grade. Not her final grade. Not her final overall grade. Not even her midterm grade. Her midterm participation grade, which was literally I did as a checkpoint so you know with how you was doing so far at that, at that point in the semester. So basically, if you go ahead and get your stuff together, you can still get an A. That was, I told him that, right? I'm saying, look, I want y'all, I want us all to be on the same page on what's good, on what is the good, what you need to do to get an A for participation. This same student now, she's sitting in class, and, and part of this, and this was something I learned I didn't know, but and remember, this is before the pandemic. Right. But these, these had a chokehold on students. They could not focus. It's like, I'm trying to lecture to them. I, I, I was like, look, let me show y'all how distracted y'all, distracted um, you all are. I said, let me ask y'all a very simple question. What day of the week is this? They couldn't even answer what day of the week is. And every time I sent out communication, I sent it out to the whole entire class. I didn't only single her out. But get this. During class one day, I said, because basically I gave her a little grade because she was on her phone. How about in class one day, she was like this. Watching something, watching a video. And this is only like a 20, 25 person class. So I could literally see what she was watching. Imagine being like this in the middle of a class and then being upset you don't get an A for, particip for participation. And so, out of nowhere, right, this was, and um, this happened like in October. Out of nowhere, the department chair, unfortunately, this is the messed up part about it, 
the department chair this whole time was a black dude. The first woman who, uh, the first student who complained was a black woman. The second student who complained was a black woman. So what ends up happening, he, he said, all right, let's meet um, in your office on October 28th. I'm not going to be this year, October 28th, 2019. He comes to my office. He says, um, Dr. Harris, actually, after um, co conversing with the deans, we have decided that you would no longer be teaching this semester. And uh, we're terminating your contract. And that's it. Now get this. He told me about the when he when we first talked about the first complaint, I thought it was just an intellectual disagreement. The second complaint, they didn't like me laughing. I just stopped laughing. Okay, that's fine. The third one, I I saw the student watching the video. Why would I think that this is an issue? So when he told me this, it literally just I just went in a state of shock. Hacky, I was, I became depressed and suicidal because just months ago, I was at the top of the world, graduating from the College of Women Mary, saying this for my hood, baby. To now, out of nowhere, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't know what happened. I'm done. Well, and I think I think it's two things. I think because one, I didn't understand the climate around gender, right? How because we see it now, it's like you do anything against queer folks or or black women, then it's like that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I actually was talking like real black revolutionary stuff, right? Because I, I was talking. I I actually I remember one day when I was teaching about Carter G. Woodson, right, and the miseducation of the Negro. I was like, dang. I remember I just paused. I was like, ooh. They're not gonna like me teaching about this. Because I'm going against, I'm I was speaking out against the establishment. I'm speaking out against highest against white supremacy and the role of higher education and white supremacy. I, I was speaking about how basically the goal of white of higher education was turn black students white. Right? Because now they're making them, they're preparing them to be able to work in a corporate world. In a business world, where is what? It's unprofessional to go by hood style. You see how this is all coming full circle? So let's fast forward. So what ends up happening, two big things happen after that. One, and I said to him, I said, hold on. Did you talk to the students about this? And guess what this Negro said? No. So hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Other than this just being a setup and y'all just straight up want to get rid of me, how do you know that this stuff actually happened? How do you, because what he ended up saying was like, yeah, this is a, a, a safe, this is an unsafe environment for the students. Don't that sound like I'm the big black beast who's going to hurt the students and, and they need to protect the students yeah. from me? So I'm like, hold on. How can this be unsafe for the students? How can it how can it be that um the way that the one student who lied on me, right? How can it be the way that she's saying it if you never actually talked to this arm class? So if you look at it, now let's look at what they use 
they have a, this, they've come over enough evidence to say that I was guilty. One email from a student who was lying. They never said anything about the live stream. They, first, they said it was wrong because you were showing the students' faces, and that go against um, FERPA. We looked up the FERPA. Actually, um, there's nothing. You, you can't prevent. It, it, it's impossible for you to be on a college campus and for your picture not to be seen somewhere, right? If you look yeah. at the – you go on a website. You look at the college preference You can't prevent. So it's like, no, that wasn't an issue. So then they moved towards that. But the only thing they said was, we found out you were live streaming, so you need to stop doing that. They didn't say how they found out or nothing. They just, I was like, okay. And then the last one, literally, the student was upset about her grade, so she went to the dean of students. That's all the evidence they had. An email from a student upset about her midterm patient grade. Somebody said I'm live streaming, and they email about from one student. And that's all the evidence they had. And now li li listen to how different this is, right? They didn't say, we're just going to not renew your contract. Let me finish teaching the rest of the semester. Let me teach the next semester. Right. They didn't say, you know what, okay, we're not going to let you teach the, the next semester. We're going to let you finish this semester. They literally said, you're done right there. How many times do you hear a professor being removed from his class in the middle of the semester? Like, if that happens, he must have done something horrible. Right. Ridiculous. Right. Like, killed somebody, a rape, like something huge. Mm -hmm. That's how severe they treated, which shows you how bad, how bad of a negative stereotype and how bad of a caricature they saw of you. Right? That I am this this dangerous that we need to take we need to take him out of the classroom right now. Wow. So then two things happen, right? One, the students, so he finally go and talk to the students. Then he finds out, oh snap. Not only was he wrong, and I didn't I wasn't even aware of this, but the students said that. I was the best professor they ever had their whole time of being at VCU. So what they end up doing, they end up protesting. And they actually had a sit-in in the president's office. And what I end up doing was I end up filing uh, um, with the EEOC on campus so they can launch an investigation into it. So to, to wrap it up, what ends up happening is they basically, they don't get the students, the students do it. They just, they just lie to the students, say, um, and I got videos of all of this, right? They say, they just say, well, this is a, a personnel matter. So we can't talk about the details. What he did was really bad. The students were like, hold on. We were in the class. So what did he do that was so bad? So they basically just kept coming up with different lies, kept changing the story, right? Um, and then Unsurprisingly, which you probably can guess, the because it's the university investigating themselves, when they concluded the investigation, they said that they didn't find any wrong. Listen to this. Guess what happened in the investigation? The dean now, there was an interim dean, and the interim dean said, and this is on record, 
that if I was him, I would not have introduced myself the way that he did as saying he was actually someone from the hood. Let that sink in. And also, remember what did, what did my chair say? My chair said, you aren't supposed to conduct any professional business with this name, Hood Scott. So right there, they clearly had a bias. They clearly did not see me as a distinguished scholar and professor. They saw me just as another black male beast hood dude who was dangerous to the students. And I'm teaching revolutionary content, right? And then the last thing, because I got all this record, in the report, you can see the chair and the dean arguing with each other back and forth on who was it that made the decision. And basically, they're saying they're trying to cover themselves. And, and, I, and I asked, I said, hold on. In my response to them, I was like, you have the video. I, I gave them the video of what was said. Why aren't you considering this? They list the video as evidence, but in their report, they do not list the, the basically the viewing of the video. So they did the evidence that clearly cleared me from what happened, they didn't even count for it. And they said that what they did was completely justified. And to wrap it up on what ends up happening, this was 2019. You know what happened in 2020, right? COVID. COVID happens. And guess what? Guess what happened with all the classes? Where did they go? Virtual. So then they were live streaming everything anyway. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. I think I'm living for the movie, bro. Wow. And the one thing that hurt me um was. For me to sue, I would have to get um the the sue from the letter of us. I think I can't remember the name of it, but I'll have to get it from the state of Virginia EEOC. And come to find out that there's a time frame where you get filed with the state of Virginia EEOC, and guess when that clock started? October the twenty eighth, two thousand nineteen. And so when I'm talking to, him, I finally get through to him. It was like I finally get through it like. I think it was like April 2021. It was like, because what I was doing, I was waiting. Oh, I, this is part I forgot to tell you. I I I I I put um put my invest my goal for investigation in, in January 2020. Okay. BCU did not complete the investigation until April 2021. They initially told me that the investigation would be completed that semester. That semester turned to that summer. That summer turned to the next semester. They just kept dragging it on, dragging it on, dragging it on. So after that investigation was over, that's when I went to the state of Virginia EEOC and they said, it's too late for you to file. The, the messed up part, I was like, well, hold on, like, but COVID happened. Didn't everything shut down? She was like, she said this as if everybody knew it. No, Virginia EEOC didn't shut down. We just kept on working. Did you know that that the that they just kept on working on discrimination cases while the whole entire world shut down during the pandemic? So unfortunately, 
I waited too late to foul, and I couldn't sue. And that's the story. Oh, my goodness. Statute of limitations bites us in the ass. Oh, yep. my goodness. So that's why I'm like, right now, I just go and speak freely about it because I just go and tell the story. Okay. So then let me ask you, you while you were talking about this, you mentioned at some point you were depressed. You were suicidal. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you handle that? Man, it was hard, right? Now, I am a man of faith, right? So at some point, my faith definitely helped me um, get through it. One part, um, like I've, I've had a hard life, right? So one thing that helped was I had been, I had a, I have a failed suicide attempt. So in 2010, I think it was, I, I have a you. failed suicide attempt. So because of that, I, I had developed the ability to fight off that um, before. So when it came up, it was like, okay, here we go again. And some of the things, you know, like, you know how black people are, we're so resilient. Um, I figured out the the this thing where, um, th and that's this. I want to pause. And say that's a real good question, right? So you're you're a real good interview. Let me slide that in. Um, what I did was, I figured out. Sometimes I had to just make it to the next day. Sometimes I had to make it to just the evening. Sometimes I had to make it to just the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I had to make it to just the next hour. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I had to make it to just the next minute. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So yes, I was like, you know what? It was, it was, it was that fucked up. Um, it was that fucked up. I was like, all right, let me just make it to the next hour. Let me just make it to the next hour. I have that made it to that. And and then it was just like just some level of just existing. It I I would literally, and this is why I can speak so deeply and intently to the issues that black men deal with because I was there. Mm -hmm. I, I would literally just be on the sofa and can't move. Right. And at the time, I'm going through a divorce now, but at the time I was married with three kids. And my ex was like, can you like get up like and do stuff? And so I would, that's another thing that kept me going. Like my kids have to lie. And my kids, like you, I actually have two girls and a boy. Okay. And, um, and my girls are daddy's girls. They are like daddy's girls. They were like, it was funny, just to give you an example. Um, one time I was playing with, I was playing with, I did this with, I did that with. And I was like, and we did something else. Then we did something else. And I was like, all right, y'all, like, basically, like, let's go, like, you go do something. And he's like, no, daddy, we'll stay with you. I'm like, girls, we literally just spent all, like, and what I was like, and I joked, said, if y'all want to spend, and we and we could spend every moment together, y'all would do that with you. He was like, yes. Yes. Yes, so, sir. Mm -hmm. That's what kept me, right? My faith and my children. They they are my wife, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So that so I that 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 did give me I got a, I got enough strength to get up in the morning to take them to school and, and take them to preschool, right? Um. Yeah, to take them to school and then what I would do I get up and then some days I would literally just lay there, lifeless, in the dark. Mm -hmm. I believe you. And know you know that feeling, right? Yes, sir. And this is what I'm talking about. This is this is why this connects back to the, ther the therapy conversation. Because 
a ther- if a therapist would have told me, actually, no, this happened. When I went to therapist, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. I went through basically five different therapists. Right? There's one white chick. That's what she said. I'm telling about how dramatic this is. This is right in the middle of it, right? Maybe a couple of weeks or maybe a month or so right after I'm told. I'm shocked. I'm depressed. I'm trying to make it to, to, to the next day. And she says, you, you just went too fast. You should have learned the culture first. You should. I'm like, what? You are a therapist telling me? You try to correct my behavior? Wow, that's not what therapists do. What? Wow. Okay. Okay. And then another therapist I got, and this is the this is the point. I finally found a black male therapist. I was hyped. I'm like, yes, I'm gonna talk to him about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to him, and guess what he said? He said, "He treating your life like lightning, as in something must have happened to you." What you should do is you need to go look in the mirror and look at what is your role in all of this. So I'm in I'm in there arguing with him. No, the student actually lied. No, they broke the law. They broke the state of Virginia law with the last stream because the state of Virginia law is that you're supposed to get me to sign this document about live streaming before I start working. You can't give me this document. What happened was they gave me they gave me the state of Virginia document on live streaming after they told me I was released. As the, this is the reason why we I'm like, and it literally says in the document, make sure the employee signs this before they start working. I saw the student watching the video. So I'm literally arguing with my black male therapist, saying that no, I didn't do anything wrong. I actually am the victim in this case. So that's why I can speak so clearly and intently about these therapists because I actually went through it at the worst moment of my life. That's a disappointing. That's at that's the time. It's interesting. I talk to people and I've talked to a few therapists and some good people who I think will legitimately help. And one of the things that I we always agreed on is that sometimes you just need to talk to somebody who looks like you. Yeah. Because we get it. Like we understand. Like a black woman should be like, you's out in the world, you's trying to do your thing. And then they're disrespecting you. If anybody could appreciate that, it'll be a black woman. Or a black man, or even BIPOC, anybody, minority, somebody. But the fact that even, in, and that's what makes it hard for black men. Because if we're at the point where I can't even trust somebody a brother look just like to me. at least work with me, not to blame me. But even if they really thought that a good therapist isn't telling you what you did wrong, you're supposed to help you discover it, not tell you. So if you're gonna sit and tell me that there's something wrong, you're not. You're. Why am I here? I don't need that. I need somebody to w- talk with me, help me work through this. Maybe I come to that conclusion on my own. But you don't tell me that. You lose me at that point. So this this has had to have put a real bad taste in your mouth about yeah. educating. How do you feel yeah. about being an educator now? So um, at one point, I was at the point where I'm, I'm not going back into the academy. I was just basically like, fuck, F the academy. I'm done with the academy. Um, 
And what ended up happening was I'm at an HBCU now. Okay. And they pretty much taught me out. So also, we got to be practical about this. When the pandemic happened, y'all know everybody went broke, right? right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a job. And right. I had three kids. Right. So eventually, the only thing I could, I eventually started working at a middle school. Um, That's what I was doing at the beginning of 2021. That was only because teachers didn't want to go in because of the pandemic. So then it didn't, in the next school year, um, they I couldn't get that job anymore. So then I eventually started working security. You do what you got to so, do. Yep. Yeah. But I'm also like, I got to make some hard decisions because you read my my bio. Right. It's hard being a security officer mm -hmm. with that background. Exactly. Now, I can do it because I'm a hood dude. Like, and the end day, I'm still just a regular dude, right? But I also got this greatness inside. This desire and will to change the world. So it's hard checking people's names at a resort, right? So when that opportunity came up, for me to um, go back and be at an HBCU, I was like, you know what? Let me go ahead and try Cause it. Because it means the, because I got to eat, right? I got to eat. I got to pay my bills. I got to take care of my kids, right? Um, So that's a part of it. And then I'm also thinking, you know what? It's an HBCU. So maybe it might be different. I know, so you went to school to become, to get the PhD so that you could teach, so that you yeah. could educate our kids. After all this that's happened, after all this turmoil and trauma and just this mental exhaustion that you had to have been dealing with, and I'm sure to a degree still deal with now, yep. has your purpose changed in, in general, and in not even just in the professional state? But in your personal state, for what you wanted to do, have you lost, has that kind of chipped into it? Like, I wanted to help my hood. I wanted to help my people. I understand what you went through, son. I've seen these people. I've lived yeah. this life. Did, did that cut into it? It changed, but it changed in a good way in that it became, it became clearer, right? Now, because originally, right, coming into the academy, like, you want to, there's this desire, this goal to move up in the academy, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's like the academy has low value to me. But going through all the stuff I going through all the stuff that I went through gave me a clearer sense of my role, not so much as an academician, but as a freedom fighter. That's what I care most about from my bio, right? The academic stuff is good, but the academic stuff is good in that, and let me say it this way, right? When I first um took this was to go into when I first joined the organization, IBFA, um, and then in, and I got my PhD, initially my title was Director of Black Political Education, right? Well, let's look at my VCU situation. I was in the Black Studies Department, which shows that people, my chair, a Black man, can have an intellectual understanding of Blackness, of Blackness, of racism, et cetera. In fact, listen to this. 
He's a psychologist. He has published articles on the effects of basically racial trauma. The traumatic effects of racism on black people. Right? So he, he intellectually understands this. All the while at the same time literally playing a key role in dismissing a black man. So that says to me, what is political education? What, 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 what does it matter if you have all this knowledge and information if you're going to end up perpetuating white supremacy when it's all said and done? So then what happens is, as you see now, my title is Director of Black Revolutionary Education. What now is education on purpose. So now is not, let me amass this knowledge. Let me amass this information, this knowledge for knowledge sake. Let me get this understanding so that I can get my people free. That's what became clear. Now, my vision is clear in that I see the necessity and importance of a revolutionary education. Education that furthers the movement, not just an academic intellectual education that actually supports and perpetuates white supremacy. I see that. I see that. You know, now I'm not a particularly spiritual or religious person, but no, I guess I will respectfully agree that sometimes things happen. For a reason. reason, yeah. So VCU, as traumatic and as honestly ridiculous of a situation as it was and will always be, will you always feel like it led you into a path that you were meant to go to. Yeah. And probably put a fire under your ass that you needed that you wouldn't have gotten had you just walked in. You right, needed right. some ish to happen to you to walk in. You became revolutionary because you were treated a certain way. Yeah. So in a way, we got the man that we have today because of what right. happened before. Because of what happened, yeah. So we, if, I mean, if you're looking for, and if you can see something positive out of it, I think- Well, we no, oh, actually that's nothing that kept me, right? It, it, it's kind of comical, but I was like, man, after all this shit I've been through, mm -hmm. Something's supposed to be happening next. Mm -hmm. So I literally, I remember one day saying, you know what? I kind of laughed to myself. I'm just going to stay alive just so I can see what's going to happen next. <laughs> oh, my. Yes. You know what? To be honest, because I know that struggle about wanting to end it, yeah. whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever right. Whatever rationale you need to give yourself to stay, you know what? Okay, this is crazy. What they gonna do to me tomorrow? Well, you gonna right. be here tomorrow, right? And I'll take exactly. it. Exactly. And that's it. And but I think the real, the real plot of this is not what they gonna do to you, but you, what you're gonna do to us, what you're gonna give us in education, in revolutionary thinking, in black male studies. I love. Black male study. I love that. That's it's a whole genre. It's a whole subject within itself that yeah. needs to be it needs to be investigated. We need to spend time yeah. on it. 
I want to continue because this is wrapped up. This has taken up so much of your life that yeah. honestly, it took me a while for even to discover that, you know, that you had kids. Like this was such a big thing that finally you got to the point, like, and I got kids and all this happened and such. I ask men a lot. What are you zealous about? Zealous zeal is enthusiastic devotion. Yeah. yeah. What is what are you zealous about that has nothing to do with what you teach? Do you have something that is entirely away from this that's just for you to get away from all mm. this? What's mm. your thing? I got to discover that because right now, because my biggest, my initial response is a revolution. And so I teach about the revolution. So I would have to discover something. I would have to discover something outside of that. Because even with my kids, right, I love my kids, but I also want to make the world better for my kids. Right. So yeah, I, I would have to find a, something I'm jealous about. Um, yeah, I have to think about that one. That's something to consider. Okay, yeah. I'll end it and I'll kind of ripping through the prize. Excuse me, mantra. The last letter in the word prize is E, and the word is expectation. So now, revolutionary teaching, black male studies. You are focused on making this world a better place for black men, black people, your kids, your community. In five years, where are you going to be and where are we as the Black people that are going to be influenced, influenced by you? Where are we going to be in five years? So we have, we would have made some movement in raising the consciousness of our people. And what I mean by that, the one good thing that has come so far with being at the HBCU is that because I can teach about the movement, I can intertwine what's happening in my classroom with movement work, right? So now it's like we're generating all of this research. Actually, let me say it this way. We doing what black studies really should be doing, right? So now, because you know, because you do you know the history of black studies? Not enough. I'm gonna give you, I'm just give you a real quick. What happened was, if you look at this one scholar called the Black Campus Movement during the 60s, you know, 60s was a, a very revolutionary time, right? What, what happened was in San Francisco, I think it was San Francisco State, and then eventually on other campuses, there were literally Black people fighting for the, um, the, the presence of Black studies on these campuses. So much so, they were literally dealing with water hoses, and dogs, just like they were on the street, and there were some people who actually got killed. Because originally what they noticed was we needed to intellect, there were some things we needed to intellectually understand to help the movement. So if we go into college, we want to be able to, we want to go to college to be able to read, because this is what they were doing, right? Outside of college, it was already reading Stokely Carmichael and, and France Fanon and Amir Cesaire and all these other um and listening to Fannie Lou Hamer, right? And and reading Ida B. Wells' work. And so it was they was already engaging with these black men and women revolutionary thinkers outside of college. They said we should be able to do this inside of a college classroom. That was the goal of black studies, right? And that's why even with black male studies, we're trying to return back to that, right? But so now I can actually do what black studies was meant to do. And I'm actually about to start a plan for grants, right? A plan for grants 
using the resources because this is the other thing higher education has resources now i can use the resources the facilities the money all that for the movement and it's already started this with my uh, first year at my current institution that's what's up that so hopefully five, after five years of doing that Mm -hmm. I would have taught so many students. We would have produced this level of research, and this research would be able to be spread to the masses. So raise the consciousness of our people. That's what I like about that, is that this Black Studies thing, somebody maybe from the outside of it might hear it and think that, oh, we're going to teach America. We'll teach everybody about that. It's not about that. It's about 13 to 14% of the, you know, of the public. That is us. You're teaching us. We are going to learn today about us, I'll about say. our experience, yep. about ourselves, about our men, about our women, about yep. how we've been treated, our what history. we've allowed to happen, what we continue to allow, the, the voices that we've been there, that we've not listened to. There's so, so, so much, brother. I'm excited for what yeah. we're doing. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Where can people find you website social media where can people keep up yeah with so first first i want to plug my organization my Let's organization go. is the international black freedom alliance t-h-e-i-b-f-a.org again that's t-h-e-i-b-f-a.org um that's my organization me i'm on pretty much all the social media outlets as hood scholar on twitter i'm dr hood scholar on Facebook, I'm Hood Scholar. On Instagram, I'm Hood Scholar. So that's where you can find me. I also want to give a plug, shout out to my coworker. He um he's a part, and I, I had to wear this shirt for this podcast. I was gonna ask you about that because that's fire, bro. I so look at this shirt, yo. It's called I Am Enough, and it's just heal. So this is a group of um Lamont Ruckers. Uh, you probably know y'all probably know Lamont Ruckers. He's a right. professional actor. Um. My homie is a psychologist. He's a trained black psychologist. Another dude who used to play in the NFL. And they, they got this tour that they're doing. It's called Just Hill, bro. And it's dope because they actually do get to deep-rooted issues that black men are dealing with. That's good. And they're going all over the country. And so um, this shirt, as you can see, is I Am Enough. Like trying to uplift black men. Like, no, little black men, you not beast. Right. You're not all these things that they say about you. You're a human being who has the full range of emotions, feelings, et cetera, that every other human being has. And so I was like, yeah, I had to sh um, show them some love. Just heal.co, Living Hope Productions. Um, okay. I am in Okay. Yep. All that information you gave will be in the episode notes. If you hit me up with the information for the shirt where people can purchase it to support the cause. So they gave this shirt out for free. So I, I don't know. I got to find out. So, oh, say. Yeah, hey, I know. I'm an extra large. Let you get a shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, power at me. I will support. Yeah, this joint tough, ain't it? And hey, you know what else I noticed? It's mm -hmm. the same colors as your podcast. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's it. Black men in prize. My Black best thing. It is my. Yep. It is my logo. Men yes, out of prize. Yep. Yes, that's it. This has been. I. You know what? I love. I love good conversation. I love yeah. just mind black men when we meet and we talk. Yeah. 
There's no stopping us, man. It ain't. It ain't, bro. There's, it ain't. Nothing. We get it, it together. No we here, man. I'm so mm -hmm. proud of all that you've done, all that you, all the shenanigans, all the ish that you've gone through, and you still right. here. You still thrive, here. Baby. You well, are. Anton Fisher said, I'm still here. What's up? <laughs> no doubt. And you're not and you're not going anywhere, brother. And I'm glad that you gave me time to even to talk to you. Oh, yeah, to definitely, bro. Definitely, man. Put this out there. People going to hear it. Um, I do this, and I talk to a lot of men, and I tell them the same thing. You got a friend now. I uh, appreciate you, 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 bro. You got information. You need to holler about anything. You, because the struggle, I, when I was 20-plus years ago, I was in that same space. I was in that room. Mm. was close. I have the right. star. Lights off. I remember mm. I, I, I yeah. got close. So I understand yeah. the feeling. And I, that's why I can say I'm proud of you. Continue I appreciate success, that, brother. Jesus, we that, need bro. your revolutionaries like you, man. Yeah, yeah, bro. Yeah, bro. So finally, to all the watchers and the listeners, thank you for giving me of your time and listening to this podcast or watching this podcast. Um, I leave you with one thing and I want you to never forget it. If you are feeling low and we both, have been in that space. We both felt like, why am I here? What's the reason? I say this a lot. Whether your father, an uncle, a friend, an employee, there is somebody whose day is going to get better because you walked in. Their day is going to be better because you called, you talked to them, you texted them, you did something. You are valuable to somebody. So if you ever get to that point with that decision, don't do it. Somebody needs you. Somebody loves you. Patty LaBelle dropped in. Somebody loves you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And never, ever forget, brothers, you are the man and you are the prize. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Men Are the Prize podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow Harvey on the gram at Men of Zealous Nature or on Twitter at Men Zealous. Have a great week and never forget, you are a man and you are the prize.